I want to encourage everybody to try and, and go ahead and do it's the same thing I did. Don't be scared. You don't have to be a master Venetian glass blower to be able to work with glass. You can find your own language. From NYC by Design, this is The Mic, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Millman. From projects to products, inspirations, and more, join us each month as I talk to members of New York City's design community about what makes design so outstanding. This season, we'll be talking to established and emerging designers to uncover how their creative worlds overlap while inviting our audience to lend their voices to shape each conversation. As part of this theme, we're excited to introduce the Mike Hotline, a voice mailbox where you share your design stories and we listen. Each month, NYC by Design will share prompts hinting at upcoming Mike guests, design themes, and discussion topics, inviting you to call and leave a voicemail at 804-592-0412 for a chance to have your story featured in a monthly episode. Today on the mic, we're tackling an age-old debate, art versus design. How do they differ and can they overlap? When we think of art, some people think about the decorative and conceptual, a creation that inspires pause, contemplation, and discussion, a painting, a statue, a photograph. When we think of design, a lot of people think of utility, something built to be used and to serve a purpose tools, utensils, furniture, visual communication. But is there a point where these two ideas meet? Today, we're going to be speaking with three creative makers who relish experimenting with materials and playfully pushing the expectations of functional objects. These are designers who work with ordinary basic materials like clay, fiber, metal, wood, and they turn these ordinary utilitarian objects into something extraordinary. My first guests are the designer duo, Chen Chen and Kai Williams. Chen Chen and Kai Williams, Inc. is a design studio that explores materials and new ways to use them. Chen and Kai met while studying industrial design at the Pratt Institute and founded the company in New York City in 2011. The studio creates a wide range of products from handmade, one-off, and limited production collectible works to producing specialty home goods carried by retailers around the world. The duo also designed a special poster for the 2022 edition of NYC by Design's Ode to New York City collection, launching this December. Chen and Kai, welcome. Hi, Debbie. Hi. I want to start with the genesis of your creative and professional partnership. At what point did you both realize that this collaboration between you was going to be fruitful for the long term? I mean, it, it's sort of funny. Every couple of years, we sort of rethink if it will be fruitful for the long term. And, you know, for the last decade or so, it has <laughs> of been. Of course. Our studio name is Chen Chen and Kai Williams, which was really just a function of us not not knowing if that would would turn into a long-term thing. And it was just the collaboration of our two names and it's just been working out so far. Yeah, we started working together when I was 26 and Kai was 27. I don't think we understood the ramifications of starting a company together. And so we didn't really even intend to do that. We were just around and, and it just eventually evolved into a decade long partnership. 
And really in the beginning, it wasn't, there was no idea to create a studio practice. We were taking odd jobs. We were even moving things. Products started to come out from our collaboration. And at the first, at first they were much smaller objects. And more recently they've, they've sort of grown quite a bit and we've done, you know, everything in between from, from interiors to Cheeto machines to, uh, to work for other people. So. Several years ago, you said that you see your studio as an ongoing collaboration rather than a brand. I'm wondering if you still feel that way. Oh, absolutely. You know, we don't design products thinking about having a range or if there's like things that we don't do as a brand. I think people kind of understand that we're just people. And so we operate in a more three-dimensional way than than a brand we think you know so i think that allows us the freedom to make things that are maybe very commercial but also other things that are not commercial at all what does your studio practice look like are you in constant communication working together or do you work individually and then bring what you've each made separately together we're definitely working in the same physical space but often there'll be parallel projects that we will check in on each other with. Sometimes we'll work on different aspects of the same project and just from different ends. What's great about having a creative partnership is that you have a set of fresh eyes to look at something. And actually the, the most valuable part is it really helps the bad ideas fall to the wayside much faster. When you're by yourself, it's very easy to get stuck on something and it might not even be very fruitful to keep going. But, you know, having somebody just there to, to check you and be like, no, let's stop doing this. It's not going anywhere. It's, it's very helpful. Or even at this point where one of us might not even have to say anything, it's just the, the presence of other person. You're sort of like, well, I, I have to present this in front of this other, other party at some point. So. Do you ever worry about hurting each other's feelings when telling each other that you don't think something's sort of hitting the mark? Sure. I mean, I think at, at least once a year, twice a year, we'll like have a, a heartfelt discussion on what's on, on the airing of the grievances for each, each other. So. How does the studio practice of a designer differ from the studio practice of an artist or does it? I was thinking a lot about that in preparation for this call. And in a way, there's a lot of different, and I think, and I very much think that we're designers. One of the, the criteria for a lot of designers is, is having a client. And I think in our artistic practice, we sort of don't have a specific client when we start a project. That does sort of overlap a little bit. So when you start a project, you start from your own creative brief, and then how does a client end up getting involved? Generally, no one trusts us to make something the first time. We'll have to make it for ourselves the first time, and then the client will be like, wow, that, that, that's really cool. So let's, let's, uh, let's try it this way. Oh, that's, I, I would never have imagined that. I would think with your reputation and the work that you've done, people would be clamoring to commission you to do whatever you want. <laughs> Kai, do you, do you have a sense of what people expect from a designer versus an artist? Or do you feel like the expectations are the same thing? The main difference, I think, is design has to, at the end of the day, it has to perform 
to a certain level, you know, that people expect a level of functionality, even if it's just very baseline. And I think, you know, the difference, it's it's like fiction versus nonfiction, you know, the artifact of, of the book is identical, but it's the content is different. And you expect the nonfiction to be true, like that's the function, right? It has, it has to perform on a, on a very baseline level to us. You are very specific and give a great deal of consideration around what materials you use in your projects. And you often give very articulate explanations in your product descriptions around why certain materials are chosen. Can you talk a little bit about why you like to be this specific about what you use and why you feel like that is something that is helpful to the work? I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that I, both of us just really love materials and want to share the joy with other people. And I think if you look at actually all of our products, all of them are a little bit about sharing this moment of joy with with somebody else. So we make these mirrors and for us, it's this this moment of discovery that happens when we pour the mirroring solution around and it, it creates a pattern that's new to us as well. Or, you know, maybe it's a, a little bit of a manufacturing, interesting manufacturing technique that we've, that we've seen. So it's, it's like the, the product is, is a product, but there's also the reason for making the product is, is sort of just that we personally are having fun with that idea. I'd love to talk a little bit about minerals. As I mentioned in your introduction, you contributed a poster for NYC Designs 2022 Ode to New York City poster collection, and your poster titled Mineral Samples shows an illustrated list of New York's geological offerings. So it's not only quite a beautiful poster, it's really informational and, and educational. Where does this interest in, in minerals come from? I think it's like almost like an innate uh, thing, you know, to be collecting rocks as a child. Um, and, you know, for as long as I can remember, I've been collecting rocks. And it wasn't until we started making things with rocks that I started looking into what it was that we had. And, um, you know, it, it, there's this um, wonderful kind of hobbyist uh, world of rock hounding and collecting that that we've kind of uh, been exposed to since we started working with rocks. My father is a scientist and he calls what we do in general recreational science. You know, it's, it's <laughs> oh, like- that's not very nice. <laughs> we don't really understand the math. <laughs> I mean, once once we started doing these, these pro projects with rocks, of course, all of our friends have, of course, collected a, a rock or two from a travel, a, a trip somewhere. And no one really knows what to do with them. They're usually sitting on a mantle or on a bookshelf somewhere. And so all of them, we, we just started getting these, these donations of rocks from around the world. And, you know, they've subsequently worked into, into to pieces as did our own personal collections. But the whole practice is also a way for us to turn our hobbies into something a little bit more than a hobby or just to use what we're doing for that. So none of us are in this to, to make a, a ton of money. So it's, you got to get your, your kicks where you can. You use what I would call radical metamorphosis of materials. <laughs> you, you take something and create something completely radical with it. Can you walk me through your experimental process? How do you come up with these really remarkable, completely original ideas? 
I think, you know, most of what we do, it's, it's nothing that is, doesn't exist already, but I think what we bring to the table is combining multiple things together. And I think that comes from the fact that we trained as industrial designers and the field is so broad and especially the way that our program was formed. It's, it's not like you do furniture for three years. You would do furniture for one semester. You do something else for another semester. And I think this like mentality of being a generalist is why we're able to mix so many things together and create something new by combining existing things. Cause you know, for the most part, a lot of things are coming from Kai looking at Wikipedia or YouTube. There is like a big amount of content that's coming from like hobbyist people just doing stuff in their backyard and we'll see something interesting. And then it's about kind of refining that a little bit and maybe combining it with something else. I mean, I think if you start at the beginning of any process, like you'll find ways to diverge that process into your own. If you go to the the Metropolitan Museum and you go to like the see go to see Neolithic art or some kind of ancient, the materials are clearly accessible to to anyone. Uh, and you try to copy that. That would like there's no way that you'll ever end up at that same object. It, it just you'll end up somewhere else. And and I think that's true of any of any process. So if you just try to do it yourself, uh, you'll find these interesting ways to divert the process or, uh, or, or learn from it. The last thing I want to talk about before I bring Giovanni into the conversation is your use of humor, um, from adding legs and arms to vases, to making a corn extruder that makes long puffed corn snacks, the length of a rope. Where, where does this sense of wit and whimsy come from? I mean, I think that, that Chen can maybe tell a little bit more about the leg story, but it, it's, it's almost a, from a very functional point. Oh, for that, yeah. I mean, I think in general, like, I mean, if we want to roll, roll back a little bit, uh, we're always trying to make each other laugh. So, you know, it's, um, I think if, if we're not having fun, what's the point of really doing this? Um, but like, yeah, there, there are certain things that are just like, it almost maybe it makes sense because our minds are a little bit warped, but you know, when we, we were using, we were using this ceramics factory and we were uh, designing things in very geometric shapes to be slipcast because we just assumed that that was what was production wise easy for them to do. And it turned out that this factory, when I went to visit it was, they specialized in making figurines. They make all of Hallmark's uh, Disney, um, ornaments. And so their expertise is actually in attaching limbs to things. So it was very, uh, practical, uh, you know, and if it's, if it's, um, it, it was a very, like a functional decision to make. Wow. Who knew? <laughs> and, and then once we got the prototype in, we realized that we were going to start scratching up people's tables unless we made felt feet for the, uh, the bowls. And, or, or somehow glaze the bottom, then we were sort of looking into it. And, and we found these, these doll shoe factories and they're making doll shoes with lasts. They're making it in the same way that, that full-size shoes are made. And it, it was as cheap as having, um, custom felt made for these, these things. So it, it sort of led into this. I mean, I spent a, a significant time of my part of my week talking about tiny shoes uh, and, <laughs> and you know, and the, the, the construction of tiny shoes. And it's not where I expected it to, to lead, lead from, but I mean, it's, it's like, again, like we could make products for maybe have a larger mass 
appeal, but I also think that it's not what we, not who we are and not why we're doing this. So, Well, your work is not only witty, it's also both functional and beautiful and original. And I want to thank you for, for joining me in this conversation, but please stick around. I'd love to have you join me again after I chat with Giovanni Valdiaviano. And now I'd like to introduce Giovanni. Gio's New York-based studio, POA, represents a merging of disparate aspects of his background, his childhood while learning crafts from his mother and engineering from his father, his career spent working as a contractor with an art practice on the side, and his dual identities as a Guatemalan living in New York. The pieces in his most recent work are also balanced between the gestural qualities of art, the technology of three-dimensional rendering, and the craft of sculpting materials, including ceramic, wood, glass, and sand by hand. Giovanni, tell me about Studio POA. Where did you come up with that name? What does it stand for? And how does it relate to your practice? Hi, hi guys. Hi, Debbie. The name of the studio is... is, is funny. When I was working as a contractor, I was making a good living, but I was not happy. I, I started looking back and thinking, when was the last time that I was really excited about something? When was the last time I was happy? And it was a combination of uh, when I decided to move to Miami and going to art shows, you know, like art shows make me really happy. And uh, being in Miami, I went to Design Miami every year. And every time I was there, I, was, I would, you know, the, the classical thing that, that everybody thinks, oh, I can do this. In this case, I, I really could, <laughs> you know? So I, I thought, okay, I'm going to drop everything I'm doing and, and I'm going to move. And this time to New York, because, you know, New York was always a dream for me since a kid. And my dad used to always tell me, you need to live in New York at least for a year. So you, your manhood is complete, kind of like a rite of passage kind of thing. So, so I remembered all that and I was like, okay, I'm moving to New York, but I had no idea how to start, what I was going to do or anything. So this, um, I need, I needed to open a company to start, you know, putting my expenses and, and all that. So, and opening a, a website. So what I did is, is, is I opened a company and I put a, a placeholder on, on website and, and on, on an Instagram account. And I remembered uh, one of my first jobs uh, that that I had in college. I was in charge of uh, visual merchandising for for a, a men's menswear clothesline. And every time we did the windows, we covered them. We put "Pardon Our Appearance." So that's what POA stands for. Uh, pardon our appearance. You know, I'm I'm. If this is a blank slate. I'm under renovation. I don't know what this is going to look like uh, when I'm done experimenting. We'll figure out if it's studio because I'm going to have a partner, if it's, you know, wh like what, what is what. And I think at the end, I, I, I like the name, you know, and I just decided to shorten it to make it easier. It really is one of one of the best names of a studio I've ever heard. It's it's actually perfect. I hope you never change it. Thank you. Yeah. So when I made the business cards, the business cards were completely, completely white. The name was just embossed because it was a blank canvas. And, and it only had my name and my phone number on it, you know, studio pardon our appearance. I think it's okay. I should mention that this is like a, like a full circle for me because I remember being in, in, in design Miami and seeing Chen and Kai's work and I'd be like, these dudes know what's up. So I've been a huge fan of their work ever since. 
I saw their their aluminum stool chamber projects back in like 2017, maybe. And I thought that was just genius. This uh, resounded to me uh, as my, my dad's shop where he had a little furnace and he had a little welding thing and he, like he had a little bit of everything, you know, and, and I used to go there and play around and make make my mom gifts, you know, out of found objects that I that I found all over the shop and welding them together or gluing them together. So I think that's like where the ad hocism style, you know, that I work with comes from. I have many influences, of course, but I wanted to say that Chen Kai were a big one because, you know, this is a full circle. I, I'm so honored to be here with them. And, and actually we have become friends. Chen was at my birthday. It was like really cool. We were at a show together. This is just a full circle for me. I'm so, so excited. Well, there's so many wonderful parallels to your work. It's almost like you come from a very similar sort of New York school in, in many ways. You also work with very traditional craft materials, wood, clay, glass. Does the material of uh, the materiality influence your design choices or do you manipulate materials to reflect what you have in mind? That's a very good question. It's very intentional, the use of these traditional materials. I believe that we have come to an era where everything's discarded really quickly because of the pace of our lives and the pace of the communication, the pace of everything. Everything nowadays is faster, so everything has a shorter longevity. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to go back to that. That's why I'm only using ceramics and glass and wood and, and these pieces, because I think that if you make an object with with a material that is not seen as let's say fine material or, or or precious it would be easier for them to throw it away you know to pass it down and so i think that what i want to create we have heirlooms right now that maybe the, the most contemporary heirloom we have is mid-century or 70s and even those those furniture those pieces started to be made by out of plywood or plastic or fiberglass and resin so now I want to make the work out of the traditional materials so that it is the future heirloom. If a tree is going to give its life to, to, you know, to, to service, it better last forever. You know, we, we should honor that life and, and have the piece be a heirloom, you know, by turning it into art, it would be less likely to be thrown away. Gio, your work is very gestural and you use a lot of solid sort of timeless classic materials, yet your pieces appear to be in motion. What does your design process look like in terms of your idea through the physical making? Is there an element of improvisation as you work on a piece or is it something very specifically thought of in advance? Yeah, uh, that's also also intentional. And I think this is where we start crossing crossing the line to art, you know, because I believe art is an expression. And, and when the object has a narrative, then it becomes an expression, not just art. And I think that um, I want to encourage everybody to try and, and, and go ahead and do uh, the same thing I did. Don't be scared. You don't have to be a master Venetian glass blower to be able to work with glass. You know, you can find your own language. You will never, ever be a Venetian glass blower because you don't have great grandparents that are from from venice and you didn't grow up in venice you know blowing glass 24 7 
for, for all your life. So I'll never achieve that, but I can achieve my own language. And if I achieve my own language, um, nobody else will have it. Like Kai was saying, you know, you just get, you just get the material, you start doing, you'll come up with something different. And so I want to keep that naivety and that, that gestural element to it because that's where I'm translating my language into the material. You know, mm. it, it, I, it's almost like a recording. Okay. I did this gesture and it stays there. You know, it's like recording what I'm doing. I want to encourage people to not be scared, grab a piece of wood, chop it in half, set like arrange it in a way that, that talks to you with others, other things. And it'll become what your design, your art, your expression. I, I'm, I'm glad that you can see that. In May of 2022, you participated in the Melt Show, curated by Adorno during the NYC by Design Festival. And H&H Gallery, who hosted the show, described some of your work as functional art. And I'm wondering how you feel about that descriptor. That's the idea. I also went to school for industrial design, and, and I feel like I don't belong in that rigid case. I don't want to talk about, you know, generalities, but the, the general is like very clean, very, you know, very uh, extremely functional. And I want to cross completely to the other side, you know. I think that design is solving problems, right? That's that's a definition of design when you arrange things to solve a problem. So without a problem, there's no design. I grab this problem and and I and I build the narrative around it and, and I find my elements and I start working around solving that problem with the narrative in mind and with the materials I have at hand. Most of my design process happens on the bench. Very Rarely I, I plan things out. I, I use technology like computer rendering and, and, and drafting and all that just because why not? You know, we have all the tools available today. It's part of the, it's part of the materials that I have at hand and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it. But I don't, I don't want the computer to take over. You know, I'm, I'm dominating the computer. So I think that in this case, like Chen was saying, you... You have a baseline of, of uh, predetermined uh, solutions that you need to come up with, but you know what the materials and, 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 the, and the expression you use to solve them, it's all up to you. You've spoken about your parents' influence on your work, how your mom taught you about craft and how your father taught you about engineering. In what ways, if, if at all, does their influence or your background living in Guatemala appear in your work? Yeah, I think that the most the most important thing I could say about that is that when you when you live submerged in a family where people are always making things, it's almost like a database. You know, you you start getting all these databases like this is how that's made, this is how that's made. If I burn this, that happens. And just having a, a collection of Things that my parents have done in their life, it's almost like having all the processes available for me. My dad was an engineer, but he was a, like a big introvert and not very ambitious. And my mom was very active, you know, always trying to, you know, get things done, trying to keep us, keep us afloat and, and trying to keep us in the best schools. And uh, uh, 
she just would take any job that she would find, you know, she would do catering and then she would teach somebody English and then somebody, then somebody needed a, a, a lamp and she would make 10 lamps for them. You know, it, it was, it was always like that. My mom had an advertising agency, which is a huge influence for me because she had a huge room where she had a ton of magazines. I would just go there and devour magazines because I'm obsessed with, with fashion. All of these elements, I didn't know at the moment that they were going to come at hand nowadays, you know, especially the, that engineer mind. I don't know how to, how to explain it. You know, I, I see something, I just know how it works. And if I want to make something like a machine, I, I already know how, how to make it without, you know, even planning it. I'm very blessed by, by that. I think that, um, again, all those little problems that my parents had during my life, um, I, I was, I was uh, always involved and so I saw the solution for them. It's designed at its purest form. Necessity brings design to, to life. Gio, thank you so much. Now I want to bring back Chen and Kai so we can all chat together about design and art and the intersection where they meet, where they differ. Kai and Chen, welcome back. I'd like to start by talking about the New York design scene. New York is one of the most crowded, busiest cities in the world, and yet it seems like everyone knows everyone, and it was so wonderful to know that you know each other. You were both in the recent show Sexy, which is indeed very sexy, curated by Annie Lee Parker at the Objective Gallery. How would you describe your experience being members of the New York City design community? Kai and Chen, why don't you go first and then Gio? Well, it's funny because I feel like it's very vibrant, but it all happened rather quickly, I feel like. You know, when we first got out of school, there were a few independent studios, but there was not really as many people doing their own studio practice. We didn't start a studio right out of school because I didn't even think that that was like a possibility, you know, like it just didn't seem Why? Like... Why? I mean, was that something that you just couldn't have envisioned? Yeah, it just didn't seem like something that you did, you know, because it just seemed like, you know, there were there were lighting designers who were, you know, had their their studios, but there were not a lot of other small studios really, maybe a handful. I mean, there wasn't really an outlet to sell sell out of that. I mean, Chen right after school was working for Moss, the very iconic Soho design store, but in a way the idea of selling in that store was totally foreign to me. I, I, I couldn't imagine doing that either. So Yeah, it seemed like a museum to me too. I mean, aside from the fact that I couldn't afford anything, <laughs> in it, I loved going there just to look at things. Yeah. You know, when I was at Moss, you know, Murray carried, you know, Dutch designers, right? Uh, and towards the end, he started carrying uh, English designers. And I always thought that that's you know, you could have a studio if you were in Holland or if you were in London, you know, and then a couple of years ago, we were in London talking to some designers and they were like, you do realize there's more design galleries in New York, right? So, you know, I think things really changed a lot in the last, you know, 10 years or so. I would also say that what, what I love about it is, I, can, I think that the art world can maybe be a little more cutthroat, but as it is now, I feel like the design world is very supportive and we often go to, to friends, to people that we don't even know directly and ask them how they made something or how, or where, 
what their their supplier is for a certain thing, and they freely give that information, and that we do as well. So it's, I think it's a pretty supportive small community as it is now, and that's just a, really makes me happy. Geo mentioned something before about the need for design to solve problems, and this is a topic I'm very passionate about. Uh, we've been asking our listeners to call in and help shape each episode's conversation. And when we asked our listeners to define art versus design, we got a lot of opinions. And listener Maria says, design solves the problem. Art brings attention to the problem. A friend of mine who has a remarkable design studio called Collins has said that design should cause problems as opposed to solve problems. And so I'm wondering what you think about the need to solve problems, the need to bring attention to problems, and the need to cause problems. Should they be designated in separate categories for art and design, or can they all do all three? I think that once you put down a rule like that, you can always find a counterpoint to those things. I, I like to try to solve problems, but you know, sometimes you need you do need to manufacture a problem, or if we come up with like a, a material which we don't, we really don't know what to do with, we're like, is it a doorstop? <laughs> and you know, that's that's really the the, the baseline <laughs> of, of worst problem to solve or easiest problem to solve, which you hopefully aren't aren't doing. But I don't know how design can cause problems. You know, I I don't think that it's designing anything because the the, the whole process of designing is arranging things to you know for a specific reason why wouldn't we do it with passion and and like in their case with fun and 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 comedy you know i i think that when you have an object going back again to the third one when you have an object that you live with it's part it's kind of like a character in your life my my chairs and my everything i have in my apartment is either made by me or by a friend of mine i don't want anything from other side because they are characters in my life and they carry they carry a, a spirit, they carry a, a passion. Every time I use something that somebody make for me, I love it, you know? It, this is where the art, you know, I look at it and it means something to me that I think that's as good as you can get. Absolutely. I, I feel like, especially these days, I want to surround myself with things that are full of spirit, that have some emotional sort of resonance with me and, and with people in my family. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the ultimate luxury because things are so accessible nowadays. Like you see how many people you see with a name brand handbag and, and this wasn't the case, you know, 50 years ago, like only the very elite had a Louis Vuitton handbag or, or, or trunk. And, and now everybody has it, you know, that's not luxurious anymore. Luxurious is something I have that you can't have. And when, when art you know, is, is, is that there's only one, you can't have another one, you know, sometimes the process of, of making it, I intentionally make things that I can't even make myself again, because I think that is the ultimate luxury. I mean, one of the, the, the most fun things is to solve, find a problem that is really specific. And maybe that's, that's something that's incredibly specific in location with fitting into a particular space or an apartment, but it also could be finding, you're finding this one thing that works with this one person. And that, if you can design to solve the problem in a physical sense, but also in an emotional sense to that person, 
I mean, that's like what I get excited about. So yeah, I think one of the most enjoyable things of having a studio is making a tool that does this one thing that you needed to do, you know, something custom that solves a problem that, that, that we have. And, you know, whether it's just like a little holder to, you know, hang a bottle of uh, cleaner in, in the spot that we need, specific spot that we need, you know, it's like those little things that nobody will ever see that you make for yourself. I think, you know, solving those problems, it's actually like the most enjoyable part of, of having a practice. Absolutely. The more special something can be that also is functional. Somehow I feel like it adds a layer to my life that is so important and almost undescribable, but, but does give me joy, really does provide joy. And I want to ask you about joy. You know, anthropological scholar Ellen Disanyaki has said that just as some people have a joie de vivre, this joy of life, there are those who have a joy of making a distinct satisfaction or even urge to create and transform physical materials into something that are both unique and useful. And it feels to me that that's one of the commonalities in your your bodies of work, that there's this sense of joy, this sense of living embedded in the work that you do. I'm wondering if you agree with that. I'm wondering if if you do, if you can talk about where that might come from. You know, I don't really know where it comes from, but people often ask if we collect things and I can't even imagine like having the desire to collect things because objects are like, falling out of my hands like constantly you know just like i i there is just yeah there's like an innate need to make things that i think it's indescribable i mean i i think that 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 there's a lot of that feeling with industrial designers there's the raymond lowey book never leave well enough alone or like when i was growing up my, my parents are architects and there's a a certain type of dimmer switch which is just the standard dimmer. And, and before I was born, my, my father had pulled off all of the dimmer switches. So there's just this little peg that's sitting there and he, he had planned to design a new dimmer switch, but you know, 30, 30 years later when they moved out, of course there was still that, that little peg there, but it's not, it's like the idea that you, that you can't, I can't help myself. I have to have to change that. It can't abide by that little little piece of plastic. Yeah, there. my my wife often jokes that I just don't like looking at anything ugly. <laughs> Everything has to have some sense of beauty to it. So my last two questions are sort of the age old questions, and I just love to get your opinions on on these. Is there a, a difference between art and design? I, not in it, it's not in the physical thing. You know, I think when people ask well, what is the difference, they're asking what is art, and you know that changes. Mm, that's brilliant. And so it's a hard question to answer because it it's not a constant definition. I think that the the way that I answer that is that, for example, there's a difference between skill and you know you can be very skilled at something but not know what you're doing. You know, like if you do something repetitively for for many, many times, you're going to be really good at it. Uh, let's, let's use painting, for example. You can paint something like a, like a photo if you practice enough. That doesn't mean you're an artist. 
Right. Uh, that, 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 that means you're a sign maker. You know, when you bring your ideas and use your tools, which in this case is painting or any skill that you have, whether it be highly skilled or, or very low skilled, you use those tools to arrange things in, in a way to express something. Then it, that's when it becomes art, you know, because it doesn't matter what tools you have. If I give you a million colors, you require a, a lot of skill to make a painting with a million colors. But if I give you three colors and you can express something like Rothko did, you know, Rothko made people cry with three colors or two colors, yes. you know, that that is art to me. And, and that's when you're making something that serves a purpose, but also makes you feel something that that's it. Yeah. Kai, you mentioned the sort of small moment of a light switch impacting how you view the world. And so my last question is this, whimsy or wit or unexpectedly playful visual moments can be found, maybe should be found in the smallest everyday things, the places maybe we overlook. Where do you find these sparks of inspiration in your daily lives and how does it influence your work? What have you come across that has given you a moment of pause that has enriched your soul? I mean, I think there's there's so many. If, if you're ever at a loss for for a moment of joy, I think going to a I mentioned going to the, the Metropolitan Museum as as being a cure a cure for that. It's not that there's lack of, of those moments out there. It's the lack. It's it's you that might be missing them or too busy to see them. And that happens often to, to me. So it's about trying to look beyond yourself and, and take the time to notice those moments. Tio, Chen. Where where have you encountered surprising, unexpected small moments that change the way you might view something? Or where have you encountered something small that has changed your opinion of what that specific functional thing can do? I love to find little little details, you know, where people were proud of their of their work. Say, for example, I like to collect antique tools, and 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 in a lot of them, they have an engraving from the company that was made, and it usually says such and such and sons. You know, they're so proud of 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 where this tool comes from. They're so proud of the work, the way that it was made. That's really inspiring to me. That whole it's well made kind of thing. It's very surprising. Also, I mean, sometimes you, like in clothes, you open up the garment and it has a very beautiful label inside mm. that only you can see it or maybe whoever takes your clothes off can see it, you know. Uh, but, <laughs> that sexy uh, secret. <laughs> yeah, those those things uh, bring a smile to my face, you know. It's like, oh, okay, you know. They, they thought of that little, that little detail. It's great. Chen, last word for you. You know, after we started ma ma making things with factories, we've realized how many things are actually hand painted or handmade, you know, and now that we can see that it's, it's kind of an incredible veil lifting and you notice it everywhere and you notice that, you know, certain things, there's no way a machine did that. Somebody hand painted certain things or like hand sculpts certain things. And it is absolutely wild how many things are handmade. Mm -hmm. Even though they're made in a factory, it's, it's a human being 
doing that. Yeah, I love to come across things that have sort of evidence of humanity embedded in them like that. Gentlemen, I want to thank you for joining us today on NYC by Designs the Mic. Very special thank you to our guests, Chen Chen and Kai Williams and Giovanni Valdiaveano for sharing your insights and the worlds of art and design. Join me next month to talk even more on the mic. Follow NYC by Design on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to the newsletter for the latest in New York City design. Special thanks to Maya Bayram and Cecilia Vidal of the NYC by Design team and the Sando Design Group podcast production team, Hannah Vitti, Wizzy Grisette, and Samantha Sager. Thank you for listening. And now to close the episode, let's hear a short live on the bench interview that was recorded at Spiral of Life, an adaptive seating installation in the Dumbo waterfront designed by Kiki Kudakova from the Caesar Stone Quartz in celebration of the special collaboration between NYC by Design and Caesar Stone. I got to sit down with local creatives at the installation site to explore how nature inspires their work. Now let's hear my conversation with Gail Conroy, Vice President of Marketing at Caesar Stone North America, to uncover the materiality of Spiral of Life. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman, and I'm here with Gail Conroy, the Vice President of Marketing at Caesar Stone, and we're sitting on the Spiral of Life sculpture made by Kiki Kudakova, and this material is quartz. Yes, and is. that is made by Caesar Stone. So yes. welcome, Gail. Thank you so much for having us. My pleasure. What is it like sitting on a sculpture made with material yeah, it's, that you have a part in making? It's, it's surreal. You know, when you think about quartz, you think about countertops, right? And everything that you do on your countertop and you never think about actually sitting on a countertop. So uh, to actually see the material used in this way and brought to life in this fashion, uh, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. It's both soft and hard, yeah. and it is quite beautiful. How is this material manufactured? So this material is quartz um, that we manufacture both in the United States and overseas. And so this particular quartz material is from our outdoor collection, which mm. we just launched earlier this year. Everybody wants an outdoor space. Everybody wants to bring the indoors outdoors. And so we really saw that need uh, and developed this wonderful product. And what's so great about it is that it is engineered. It can withstand anything mother nature can throw at it. So uh, regardless of temperature, weather, whether you're here in New York or on the West Coast, uh, it can withstand anything. And it'll look great and hold up for a long time to come. As somebody who is immersed in the world of design, <laughs> yeah. what excites you most about the future of design? Yeah. Um, I think it's a few things. You know, really how personal it's becoming. I think you know, irregardless of the installation or the project, um, you know, design can speak to people in so many different ways on a very personal level. I also think uh, you know, this is a perfect example of pushing the boundaries. You know, taking materials and using them in very non-traditional ways is so exciting. Uh, and, and I think the, the last thing I think that we've been seeing so much of is really how nature is inspiring design, both in the products that uh, manufacturers are creating and the way designers are really ingesting and being inspired by nature and the things that they're doing. 
the artist of this sculpture, Kiki Kudakova, talked about how she was influenced both by the waterfront yeah. and the Brooklyn Bridge and the design. Yeah. What materials do you feel most connected to in the natural world? Yeah. Well, me personally, I would have to say I'm very much inspired by the ocean and the sea. Uh, you know, bringing those seashells home and putting them all over my house. You know, people go to the mountains, they bring home stones and pebbles and things like that. And so I think people want to bring that little piece of nature into their home, be surrounded by it, uh, you know, help them think about, you know, memories of time that they spend in nature. So that really speaks to me. What excites you most about New York City design? <laughs> uh, I definitely think that it's, um, you know, just this great eclectic mix of putting so many different styles together. Um, as I said earlier, really pushing the boundaries with materials and using them in very non-traditional ways. And I think, you know, so many designers are inspired by different trends and things that they see all over the world. Uh, and to, to actually see how it can come to life in a piece of stone, I think is really amazing. Gail, one word to describe <laughs> the spiral of life. Community. Mm, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. Isn't it great to be able to connect in this way? We're sort of Absolutely. encouraged to look at each other yeah. and reconnect after Absolutely. a time of not really being able to do that in person. It's wonderful. Yes. Thank you so much for joining Thank me you, today. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you.